0: Local News Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 a.m. Good morning. Thank you for
1: tuning in. Happy Monday morning to everybody. Uh, we've got a packed show for you to kick off this week. We're going to talk about whether or not to regulate gas prices in this province. We're going to touch base on the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue with Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Mike Laborde in a bit. And we'll also talk about, uh, well, that big gift to uh, the Cooper Foundation uh, has gifted over to the Marjorie Snowden Willoughby Memorial Hospice Home here in Kamloops. But we're going to start off as we do on Monday mornings with uh, Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? Good
2: morning, Shane. Thank you. I'm well.
1: How about you? I'm good. How was the weekend? It was busy. (laughs) (laughs) You are always busy. Uh, Kyla, as we know, uh, it's been, what, uh, seven months now since uh, marijuana was legalized in this country, uh, and one of the big concerns pre-legalization was, oh my God, we're going to have all of these drug impaired drivers. How are we going to be able to find them? How are we going to be able to test them? Uh, The federal government, uh, as part of legalization, approved the Drager Drug Test 5000. a device apparently uh, so hideously awful at doing what it's supposed to do that most police departments in this country are saying thanks, but no thanks. Uh, And now we have a second possible device that could be used by law enforcement officers, the uh, Sotoxa device. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this thing. More on the right track Does this thing work? Uh, Do you have concerns? What's the deal with this device?
2: So it's closer to the right track. Um, there are still concerns with it. It still does have a very limited operating temperature range, so it's not going to work in very cold temperatures accurately or very hot temperatures accurately, so that's obviously a big problem. My uh, bigger concern about it is that there's a lot of moving parts um, with a huge potential for error. So there's the analyzer uh, itself, then there's a cartridge that gets inserted into the analyzer, and then there's a swab which is used on the driver, and then inserted into the cartridge inside the analyzer, which has to be kept perfectly level and still during the analysis. So there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong, uh, various moving parts and aspects of the device that can fail at any point in the testing.
1: Yeah, and the uh, you and I talked about this with the Drager device as well, the fact that it does not work so well in cold weather, which is a little bit of a problem in a country where winter can last from, you know, four to six months, depending on where you live. Uh, similar concerns with this device, and as well, I think the one thing that caught my eye was the, the keeping it level. I mean, if you're going to swab someone's mouth and you're going to put this thing in... Uh, How does a police officer do that? They have to put a level space in their car. Like, it just, it seems kind of weird.
2: It really doesn't seem like it's designed for practical roadside use. I mean, it's very difficult to find a level space when you're parked roadside because often the ground is uneven. You know, you can't put it on the hood or the trunk of the police car because there's always a lilt to that. Um, And so it is going to pose a lot of problems. I don't know what police are going to do to deal with that, whether they're going to build a special table inside the police vehicle or install a level in there so that they can measure things. They're going to have to do something because it's Inevitably, somebody will be cross-examined on the angle at which that uh, device was placed and it's going to raise problems at trial.
1: Here's a a couple of things jump to mind on this. Number one, uh, again, we're seven months into legalization. Police so far have been finding workarounds to not having a device after looking at the Drager and saying, listen, this thing just doesn't meet our needs. Uh, We're going to fall back on the usual roadside sobriety test kind of stuff to figure it all out. Is there a need for a device out there or have police just found their own uh, in the absence of such a device so far?
2: there's no need for it. Police have their own tools that they've had for years. We had drug-impaired driving provisions in the criminal code prior to legalization um, and the police have been using them for a long time. If they have a problem with not detecting enough drug-impaired drivers, they should train more people on the traditional methods. That's a lot faster and it's a lot cheaper than buying a bunch of equipment that hasn't been tested in our courts um, and may ultimately be found to be unconstitutional. And as far as the data that's been coming out shows we don't really have a drug impaired driving crisis after legalization there hasn't been a spike police forces are reporting their numbers and there's about the same amount of drug impaired driving cases after legalization as there were before
1: now someone might turn around kyla and say well maybe we're seeing those numbers because there just isn't a device to accurately test for them or not any any accuracy to that
2: no, there's not. And the reason is that those devices, the or Drug Chest 5000 and the Abbott Sotoxa, only test for THC concentration in the body. They don't tell an officer anything about whether or not somebody's impaired. And because of the way that THC is metabolized by your body, you can have very high THC concentrations with no impairing effects if it's, you know, THC has been stored in your fat cells and is breaking down, or if you're somebody who's a long term user, like a medical user or a chronic recreational user. Um, they're not going to experience the same impairment that you would with alcohol, Um, and there's studies have shown there's no correlation between THC concentration and impairment in the ability to drive
1: and the other thing that really strikes me and you and I talked about this a while ago with the Drager device was the sheer time that device takes to, to test a driver it was somewhere, what was it, 30 minutes or, or even more than that to accurately test a driver the Draeger, the Sotoxa device uh, it looks like according to the company's own video I'm I'm thinking what, 10 minutes or something is the standard field sobriety test just a better and faster way to do it?
2: Yes, and the criminal code legislates that the standard field sobriety test is required to be done uh, immediately um, which you can do because you can tell the person okay you know stand on one leg and do this thing for 30 seconds follow the pen with my eyes for 30 seconds and walk this line and that takes you know a minute or two mm. um, that's something that can be done very quickly whereas if you are putting a person through a process of swabbing their mouths ensuring that the sample is not contaminated and then for the sotoxa waiting five minutes for the analysis which is an improvement over the dragger but still a significant period of time where you're just standing there and nothing is happening
1: yeah no for I mean I, I keep thinking about if they stopped traffic in any kind of road with moderate amount of traffic it takes 10 minutes and you only have even just one device you're looking at testing six drivers an hour about which is anyway I don't think that works very well um, the other thing I wanted to chat about uh, the Supreme Court ruling that uh, that you blogged about recently uh, basically looking at the issue of how police can question a driver based on the reasons that they pulled them over break this thing down for me what's this about?
2: so this was a a murder case where a police officer had uh, stopped a driver for a motor vehicle act infraction or so he said um he said that there was speeding and um another violation and during the course of the traffic stop the officer began to question the driver about drug trafficking there was nothing um conveyed to the driver to indicate that the investigation had shifted into one of drug trafficking and the officer's justification for the questioning was well if i'm going to be dealing with dial dope i want to get the questioning started as soon as possible which is a really bad thing to do. um, Because while police are allowed to engage drivers in questioning um, for traffic stops uh, at the time that they conduct them, their questioning has to be related to the thing that they're investigating. So if they stop somebody for a Motor Vehicle Act violation, they need to question in relation to Motor Vehicle Act offenses. And if the investigation shifts focus into something related to a criminal charge, they need to convey that to the driver so they know what they're being investigated for and can assert their rights properly. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, the one thing that jumped out to me, I mean, there should be uh, some leeway for an officer to switch gears. I mean, if you pull somebody over for speeding and, you know, suddenly sees a bag of cocaine sitting in the passenger seat or, you know, even something like a smoking gun, uh, there should be some capacity to tackle that issue, though, yeah?
2: Yes, absolutely, and it's very easy for the police to do. All they have to do is say... Sir, I see this bag of cocaine sitting on your passenger seat. I'm now investigating you for a drug offense. Mm. Um, and then the person is aware that they're being investigated for that. Um, but our our courts have ruled under Section 9 of the Charter, your right not to be arbitrarily detained, and Section 10A of the Charter, your right to be informed of your reasons for detention. But you have to be told as soon as an officer begins to uh, single you out for focused interrogation on a point why you're being singled out and uh, given your your charter rates and warnings at that point in time.
1: Uh, The other issue I wanted to touch base on, and and you raised it uh, when you were visiting Vernon a little while ago to do some work there, uh, the sort of separation based on gender for barristers in in the Vernon Law Court system. Uh, Any update on that? Are they moving to change that? Is Is that a problem elsewhere? What's going on there?
2: So there's been a very positive update Um, as soon as I I posted my uh, concerns on Easter Sunday and on Tuesday afternoon uh, Attorney General David Eby announced uh, that the signs had already been changed in the courthouse so very quick action from government which was incredibly pleasing Um, and not something you see very often. Uh, And as well he's uh, conducting a review of all courthouses in British Columbia to ensure that gender neutral signage is in place in every courthouse so that nobody feels excluded on the basis of their gender.
1: Have you run into that anywhere else? Is, it, is Vernon an anomaly in your mind or...?
2: Vernon is an anomaly in my mind, um, but I haven't been to every courthouse uh, across the province, and I do know that in Toronto, there was an issue earlier this year with the same thing. The uh, barrister's lounge was separated by men and women. Um, in Toronto, unlike in, um, unlike in Vancouver, the separation was actually um, enforced, and uh, so the men uh, had to go in the men's room, and the women had to go into the women's room, and uh, there were a number of women who raised their concerns on Twitter, and essentially Took over the men's space to protest, and now it's been changed to gender-neutral.
1: What I'm trying to figure out what the reasoning for that is. Like, it's not like it's a change room or a bathroom or I don't know something that require a level of privacy where you might you know raise the suggestion of dividing by gender. I mean, what goes on in there that that, that would even be an issue?
2: Well, historically, the rooms were used by lawyers for changing um, out of their street clothes and into their court robes. Mm. Now, most people come to court wearing most of the, the roving attire, and they just have to, you know, add on the vest and the, and the gown once they get to the courthouse. So there's no, you know, changing that would require gender separation. Um, and as well, if you do need to do that type of changing, there's always a washroom that you can go into to do it. So there's already a designated space where you can, you know, take more clothing off than you would in front of other people. Yeah. Um, and it's it's no longer an issue. Our society has progressed.
1: No kidding. Oh, uh, one thing before we let you go, Kyla, just out of curiosity, because I, I see you re- reacted to a bit on social media, but um, we have the big changes ICBC is going to announce in September where they're going to ensure the driver rather than the vehicle. Uh, I don't know if there's any overlap there with what you do sort of on the legal side, but uh, any concerns or, or issues as we kind of approach this regime with very little information about how that physically will look like right now?
2: Well, it is concerning that we have very little information, and there was a recent case involving a woman who was given a $21,000 quote for her annual insurance because she wanted her husband to be listed as a driver, and he had a terrible driving record that meant that he had to pay all sorts of additional premiums to get insurance. Mm. Um, ICBC has said that once the uh, changes are in place that um, those costs Uh, will be reduced and you'll be able to add an additional driver for just a small premium every year. Whether or not that's true, we won't know because they've released so little information about what the changes are going to look like that we have no idea how to calculate people's insurance costs.
1: So ideally, when would you like to see that information? I mean, obviously right now, but we're roughly about three months away from this thing. And I think a lot of people are really wondering, you know, especially financially, what does this look like for me? I know what my insurance is now. I know what my driving record premium is, all that kind of stuff. All of that stuff after September 1st for me and everybody else around the province is a big question mark.
2: Yeah, I think everybody should be getting that information with at least three months warning before their insurance is due so that they have time to save up money if they're going to have to pay more or so, so, so that they have you know the opportunity to make plans with surplus money if they're going to have extra i mean insurance is a huge cost and not everybody in fact most people are not in a position where they can shell out thousands of dollars um on a moment's notice
1: absolutely kyla always a pleasure thank you so much for starting off our week
2: yeah, thank you for having
1: me. There we go. That's Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. We'll talk to her every Monday morning right here on The Woodford Show. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll talk to the Executive Director of the Kamloops Hospice Association, Wendy Marlowe.
0: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning and welcome back to The Woodford Show. real pleasure to be joined in studio this morning uh, by Wendy Marlowe, who's the Executive Director of the Kamloops Hospice Association. How are you? Good. Good morning, Shane. Thanks morning. for having me. Yeah, uh, apologies for the broom closet, but... <laughs>
3: we can make it happen.
1: <laughs> All right. So, uh, listen, the Cooper Family Foundation, and full disclosure, Todd's uh, Todd's a friend and a neighbor of mine, uh, but he his family has uh, created this charity where they build and they, they auction off a house, and then they use the proceeds of that house to, to turn around and go towards uh, some kind of of a cause. The initial one helped you guys a lot, uh, which is a uh, $1.4 million, 4,000 square foot addition to Marjorie Snowden Willoughby Memorial Hospice Home, which I'm you must be over the moon about. Yeah. So tell me first a little bit about the expansion itself and how it helps you guys out.
3: Well, it is an amazing gift is what I call it. And um, and so the expansion is about community. Mm-hmm. So Shane, I feel like we have this expertise. We have 12 beds, as you know, and we care for uh, patients who are at the end of their life. Yeah. Um, but now we can stretch this out into education education for the community. So in this new building, we're going to have programs dealing with um, living until you die. So everything from advanced care planning to talk about what's important to you and right through to workshops for caregivers. So some people, uh, many people in our community are caring for their loved one at home. And I always say some knowledge gives them confidence. Mm -hmm. And so we want to have short workshops for people caring for their loved one at home, some helps and tips on Maybe pain management. Why won't my loved one drink or eat? Um, And each of those workshops
1: will have just a little piece of self care for the caregiver. Okay, you got this new space. Um, how does this help? What, are you, what do you do now that you've got it? Obviously, um, a very welcome addition, and it helps yeah. you guys out immensely, but what's What's the next two or three steps?
3: Well, the first thing we've, we've been busy working at, because this is, uh, uh, if we fast-forwarded. This has uh, come on really quickly for us, and so we're putting programs together. So we have a learning development coordinator, and she's putting programs together, everything from the workshops we talked about. We're going to have some relaxation class classes for people living with a terminal or life-living illness, because as we know, relax deep breathing can also help with pain. Mm. And, um, and then we're going to um, have some yoga classes, stretching classes, and then some counseling. We started a men's morning coffee group, and we want that to continue, navigating the holidays, some craft type, uh, um, come together and do a craft at... Christmas or Mother's Day to remember a loved one. And then something that I'm really happy about for the whole community, we have a resource corner. And so you can pop in and find information either online or books or pamphlets, everything from advanced care planning to grieving to what paperwork do I do to the government or just come and uh, have a quiet space um, to yourself. So really, it's an outstretch of what we do throughout the community.
1: Do you have a waiting list? I assume you must 12 beds.
3: Well, I always say not per se, and, and the reason I say that is it depends on need. So mm-hmm. someone may be on our list to come in, we phone. Uh, they say, you know, I'm doing really well at home, or I'm fine where I am, and and I'm not going to come today. So it was really
1: on need, and who needs the bed most. Is is uh, The reason I ask, I'm just wondering if, if now that you've done this, do you turn the attention to expanding to add more beds, or whether, you know, the ones you have now, or so, I don't know if there's a need there yeah. or
3: not. And, Shane, you know, I always say, it depends what you, day you ask me. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe today we have two empty beds, and maybe by tomorrow we have none. Right. Now, we also have, uh, they're not our beds, but they're also our beds over at Overlander for the community. It's called the Trinity Wing, and there's four hospice beds, uh, private hospice beds over there, too. Wow. So at this point, we want to reach out into community, support people more in their homes.
1: What was it like when when Todd and 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 the foundation members came in the first time and said, "Listen, uh, this is who we are. Uh, we want to do this. We want to. This is how we're going to get there. Uh, and this is what we want to do for you." Or or whether it was working with you guys to form. Okay, where would the money go? But uh, what was that journey like?
3: It was amazing. It started with a phone call from Nelly, a voicemail saying, um, "I'm representing a representative of family in town that want to do something for you. You're going to want to call me." And I did, mm-hmm. and um, met with Telly, uh, Nelly, Todd, and uh, Monica. And and at that point, the the plan was to build this house in Aberdeen, sell it, and the funds would come to us. And we thought that was amazing. Right. Then Nellie Phone said, what are you going to do with the money? And I said, well, we have a strap plan. We're going to put it in a building fund. And didn't she come back about a week later and say, we're going to build it for you? And wow. it's it's almost unbelievable. And, and you question it and think, well, how does this work? And I must say, right from the foundation um, to the project managers, to the, every tradesperson, the respect they've shown and the building they've given us is beautiful.
1: Wow. Uh, do you continue to work with the Cooper Family Foundation on something else now, or do they move on any Well, as there? Nelly
3: Nellie said at the <laughs> Open House Friday, she said, we'll always be part of this. If anything, if you see anything, they've also come on board uh, for our big gala May 10th as our platinum sponsor, yeah. uh, and so uh, it's pretty amazing. I feel that we have a lifelong uh, partner uh, with the Cooper Family Foundation.
1: Yeah. Well, I know Todd and Monica, uh, that, that place is very, very close to their heart, yeah. and I know from a very deep place, they wanted to do something really special there and I think they've accomplished that but something tells me you haven't heard the last from them. But we'll no and, and you know
3: it's like Todd said when his dad and his grandpa died he said you haven't seen the last of us don't know what it's going to look like well now we do know what yeah, it looks like Exactly, and we're uh, really excited to unveil the
1: the, the Cooper Community Resource Centre as part of the Camelot's Hospice Association. Awesome. Some good community building stuff yeah. there and some really great work. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes this morning. Really Thanks for having it. me. <laughs> there Thanks. we go. That's Wendy Marlowe, who's the Executive Director of the Camelot's Hospice Association as you heard uh, the Cooper Family Foundation doing some pretty amazing work on that front. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about whether or not we should be regulating our gas prices.
0: Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL six ten a.m. and Radio NL.com.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. There's a handful of issues out there that frustrate people more or less regardless of where they plant their political flag. Housing is one of those. Gas prices is definitely one of those. And in the last few weeks, you've heard an uproar on the gas pricing front, uh, mainly from the lower mainland, but we're not immune outside, as we saw a big price bump recently here in Kamloops. A uh, real pleasure to welcome to the show this morning a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Mark Lee. Good morning, Mark. How are you?
4: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Shane.
1: Yeah, appreciate you coming on. So you're making the argument that, uh, like, uh, like Quebec and the Atlantic provinces, BC should uh, take a hard look at regulating its gas prices through the BC Utilities Commission. Uh, what do you think that would accomplish?
4: Well, I mean, I think the key thing uh, for for drivers is to realize that you know there's there's a number of different components that are driving uh, higher gas prices. Uh, I think a lot of the attention to date has been on on taxes, in particular the recent carbon tax increase, and we had another one last year. Uh, Although, if you go back over the past few years, uh, taxes are only up you know, a few cents, uh, per liter. So about six cents per liter in Metro Vancouver. Uh, it's, it's less than that, uh, in Kamloops because part of it is the federal GST, which just gets levied on the overall price. So it makes a little, little bit uneven. Um, but you know, here in Vancouver, where prices have peaked above a dollar 70 per liter, um, if you go back over three years, the the total 55 cent increase, uh, 49 cents uh, of that can be explained by basically market factors: the price of crude oil, uh, the the profits or re- margins going to the refining industry, and then the retail uh, and marketing side. Now, I, I did take a look at the data for Camloops, and it you know seems like a lot less uh, acute uh, there. So yeah. prices in in you know it's about. 34 cents less than uh, in Vancouver. So um, I'm sure a lot of, people in Vancouver would be happy to be in Kamloops right now uh, in terms of getting around and doing what they do Mm. but it is basically the same um, regional fuel market area so the the supply that comes to Vancouver uh, also includes the Burnaby refinery, the Parkland refinery which supplies the local market and then we get supply from three refineries in Edmonton uh, which process crude and then transport refined products down the, the Trans Mountain pipeline. Kamloops similarly gets uh, its supply predominantly from those three refineries in Edmonton. And then I think there's a little bit of excess that comes via, there's a refinery in Prince George uh, which processes uh, BC crude. So some of that I think makes it to the Kamloops market, but it's hard to tell like there's, there's not enough yeah. information to break uh, those out. Yeah. But I think the similar dynamics in terms of the, the historical margin going to refiners uh, is up substantially compared to um, uh, you know what it was, say 10 years Right.
1: So uh, some people might be surprised to know, as I mentioned off the top, Quebec regulates its gas prices. Uh, The Atlantic provinces all regulate their gas prices. They all do it in a slightly different or unique way. So I'm curious how you think... regulation would work. So, for example, in Quebec, they use a price floor, uh, which you could make the argument with by setting a minimum price that they're preventing some people from having savings that might uh, on some days fall below that. New Brunswick, for example, has a price ceiling, but prices rarely ever reach that level. And you can make the argument maybe it's set too high and it's not really all that effective. Uh, how would you tackle that here?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Quebec has a, a slightly different. Context. I think they were concerned about some uh, bigger retailers coming in and engaging in, uh, you know, in price undercutting uh, and then disrupting the market that way. That's not the situation that we're facing uh, in BC. Uh, I think it would be informative to have, uh, you know, a proper investigation into uh, into all of this because there's a lot we don't know. There's uh, there's a bit of a black box when it comes to some of the dynamics going with the industry. We know that you know it's like you know three refineries or four refineries here that are producing. Uh, the, the, the vast bulk of, of our supply, but I think given where prices are right now, it makes sense to contemplate uh, a price ceiling. Uh, certainly if PEI and New Brunswick uh, can do that, then uh, BC can as well. We have the BC Utilities Commission uh, already set up. You know, we regulate the price of electricity, we regulate the price of natural gas. Uh, I think it's slightly more complicated regulating the price of gasoline and diesel, but it's, uh, you know, it's not rocket science uh, to do that. But we should also be thinking about other regulatory measures as well, making sure that um, suppliers have you know, two or three weeks of supply on hand to mitigate against potential supply disruptions, because that's the excuse that's uh, always used. Um, some level of greater coordination of that supply, because I mean, demand hasn't really fundamentally changed uh, in 10 years. It's up a little bit, but only a small amount. Um, you know, so I think there's, a, there's more accountability and transparency we could get uh, from the industry to make sure that we don't have these price spikes that adversely uh, affects uh, consumers.
1: When I was researching this segment I found an independent sort of uh, energy analyst and I'll just read you the quote from that and it was specifically on regulating gas prices and I'll just read it to you now. So it says, quote, if you track prices with taxes removed and you correct for the difference in their underlying wholesale price, prices between Atlantic provinces and the rest of Canada are not that much different. Uh, so there was sort of an argument against regulating being all that effective. Your take?
4: Um, well, I mean, I looked at uh, you know Halifax as a comparator. So if you take the the retail price. Uh, excluding taxes. So that's, you know, there is some difference there in taxes. Uh, you know, it's still about 30 cents uh, cheaper in, in Halifax. So I mean, some people may say that, um, you know, regulation hasn't uh, worked enough or that the, the pricing tends to be right, you know, close to the ceiling of what that maximum price is. Um, you know, but certainly it seems to be the case that, uh, that consumers in Halifax are paying a lot less. Uh, for their, um, their gasoline than they are here, and the, the margin going to refiners uh, is substantially less.
1: Mm. Uh, the other big argument on the gas front, and, and you're here made a lot, and I think there's some validity to it, is if you build the Trans Mountain pipeline, there is some capacity in that pipeline uh, for refined product, which would increase overall supply, that overall supply would then drive down prices. Uh, what's your response to that?
4: Well, I I don't think this is actually a supply problem. I think it's an unfair pricing problem because we only have a small handful of companies that are supplying the marketplace. Um, Really, the the dynamics we're seeing right now uh, go back to around 2015. So if you remember from like summer 2014 into early 2015, uh, the price of crude oil dropped a lot. Um, And that price decrease was never fully reflected at the pump. So the the price at the pump dropped a little bit, but I think basically the refiners, and to a lesser extent the the retail marketing side, stepped in to take uh, profit. Um, you know, and, and basically kept the, the price from dropping as much. And then since then, we've seen an escalation of these excuses from uh, from the industry. There's always there's some kind of maintenance issue, or we're switching over to the summer blend. I mean, I think these are all convenient uh, excuses that essentially uh, allow excess profits be driven from uh, BC to uh, Alberta companies. Uh, and you know, the federal government has a competition bureau. They should be investigating this. Uh, the provincial government should set up some kind of um, uh, inquiry or, uh, you know, something to investigate the, the marketplace practices here um, because it is very uh, opaque. But the data that we do have available suggests that uh, the refining industry is stepping in and taking much higher um, profits than they have historically and much higher than you see in any other market in Canada.
1: Uh, this has become a bit of a political uh, fight over gas prices as the BC Liberals look to make some traction. I know uh, Andrew Wilkinson told me personally a little while ago he doesn't see any gouging out there uh, contrary <laughs> to your argument uh, and they're really pushing the government to uh, have some kind of a tax break on this thing and I'll, I'll put the caveat out there that in 16 years in power they didn't put a break on gas taxes and I seriously doubt they would if they reform government tomorrow. Uh, but but if it's not going to be a sales tax thing, I mean, the, what do you see as solutions in the short term, Mark?
4: Um, well, I, we talked about a number of those regulatory measures, but, you know, I do think, like, when, when, I, when we talk about carbon taxes, um, you know, we argue that a portion of those carbon taxes should flow back to low to moderate income households, because the overall uh, increase associated with the taxes is what economists call regressive. It means it, to captures a bigger share of the budget of lower income households than higher income households. So I think there is some case to be made for targeted relief to lower income households who, you know, are dependent on driving to get to work and to to do their, their their daily needs um but i wouldn't go for across the board uh tax cuts i because it's because it's not a supply problem you know it's an unfair pricing problem Uh, all you're going to be doing is transferring money from the public treasury where it can support you know good things uh to uh, increase profits um for to to the industry so you're essentially rewarding um this gouging behavior
1: mark always a pleasure thanks for taking a few minutes
4: Take care. Thanks.
1: That's Mark Lee. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's making the argument that like Quebec and the Atlantic provinces, B.C. should regulate its gas prices. Uh, We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show, and we'll focus our attention on the Trans Mountain Pipeline and some other issues with Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Mike Laborde joining us in studio.
0: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610am and RadioNL.com. Good morning.
1: Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome you in the studio this morning, the Chief of the Whispering Pine First Nation, Mike Laborde. How are you, man?
5: I'm good, Shane. How are you? What do you think of our uh, broom closets? Today? This is uh, really small I'm- <laughs> We <laughs> we are comfortably close, I <laughs> or uncomfortably close. Uh, you know
1: me; it? I'm not usually a close talker. I know, so. right? <laughs> hey, um, Trans Mountain Pipeline. You and I talked about this quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I know. Last time I touched base with you, you were hoping to get an offer in front of the federal government uh, by the spring. So we're gonna it's going to be May and uh, on Wednesday. Uh, how are we looking? You got an offer on the table? What's the where are we at?
5: Well, uh, I have a, a conference call with my team later today. And so what we've done, we've um, put together our consortium. So yep. you you have the First Nations that are, are expressing interest in owning this. And then you have, uh, you know, your insurance guys, your uh, engineers. Um, and finally the the last piece was the financial guys. And so they just came in uh 10 days ago uh TD Securities uh said they would support us in in doing the financing and and how that would work. And we were happy with those guys uh, mm. because those were the same folks that uh worked with Kinder Morgan in purchasing the pipe from uh from Terrison. Yeah. So we're we're quite happy with those guys. We'll be having um a conference call later today to talk about when we can get in front of uh the government and, and start uh, With making an offer on yeah. this pipeline
1: is there a sense of urgency from your side to get something sooner because you and i both know and we talked a little bit about it off the air this the closer you get to a federal election the more the whole system grinds to a halt to see what happens and then it picks up again on the other side. Do you get that sort of urgency time-wise to get this done or no?
5: Yes, uh, we were actually working on the timeline of the, the May 22nd uh, to complete the consultation with okay. uh, EnerCan. And so that was our timeline and we're still going to uh, keep and adopt that because when the house gets up uh, for the summer, things stop. It's already starting to slow down. I mean, it takes them longer to return phone calls and to return emails and that kind of thing. So there's, because everybody's scared of stepping in doo-doo and and making a wrong decision or a wrong turn this close to an election.
1: Um, now, uh, the issue's made a lot of media headlines uh, because it's a group of First Nations want to come in by the pipeline. We know that just like every other community, there's some people for, there's some people against. So, uh, you're aware of this open letter from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs who say, basically says, listen, the pipeline's not all that profitable, construction costs are going out the window, uh, we're not sure if there's a market for the other, they just go on and on basically saying, listen, First Nations communities should really stay away and this is targeted directly at you guys. What's your response?
5: Um. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank UBCIC for their concern about my financial well being at my band. However, <laughs> I do have uh, financial experts that are advising me on how this will work. Mm. And so, those are the folks that we're talking to. You know, we're talking to TD Securities, we're talking to Fiorini and Associates from, from Toronto. These are the guys that build the models that will demonstrate how this pipe is profitable. Pipelines are profitable, whether regardless of the price of oil. And so they they're they're always making ten percent of the cost of operating, and so that's how they make their money It has not very little to do with the price of oil it's just um that's how they work and so once you understand how a pipeline um earns revenue and then it just becomes a matter of um, efficiencies for profitability, and so that's why Kinder Morgan was uh, eyeing this pipeline. So if, if they could twin it, they could, you know, double the volumes and make it more attractive to people to use this pipeline. Um, the problem was when British Columbia stepped in to fight Kinder Morgan, um, they said, "Well, you know, we don't have a bottomless pit of money like a, a provincial government does," and so that's why Canada bought it. And the irony is, for for us. First Nations sitting on the sidelines watching this fight, you have provincial taxpayers fighting federal taxpayers, <laughs> and it's it's kind of funny, well, yeah. you know, in a, not in a ha-ha way, yeah. but in a, oh gosh, way.
1: You're right. Um, you made the case recently in the Globe and Mail that if you could get in there and get control of the pipeline or partial or, or ownership of all of it, that it would go a long way to helping First Nations communities stand in their own two feet uh, and with rights and title and all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. Just sum up that argument for oh, me. What is it?
5: This is where you know. This is a demonstration of where rights and title meets economics. Right, our participation in in major projects, whether they be mines, whether they be logging operations or pipelines, and so what what we're looking for is a seat at the table. Uh, so that we can have our our voice heard when it comes to the environment. Right now, the pipeline is you know they have N E B, they have uh, Thompson Nicola Regional District, the City of Kamloops, the you know municipality of Clearwater. Everybody has this environmental oversight except the First Nations. Mm. And so, if we can get in there on equity, we can we can have that environmental oversight from an owner's point of view. And the other way would be through taxation. So if we had uh, a reconciliation fee, a toll, that you know First Nations have always had tolls in, in, in our lands. And so if we had it that way, we'd also get that environmental jurisdiction because we all want the same thing. We want the safe transportation of oil to its market. That's just, We all want that same thing, and that hasn't changed. Okay.
1: Uh, another topic you and I have talked about this a little before, but the land title office records issue. Uh, last time I touched base with you, you you lawyered up, and we're looking for a cease and desist. Um, any update on that, either in the court process or whether somebody's reached out to you to say, "Hey, Mike, with uh, the land titles office, we want to sit down finally and have a face to face and get some of this consultation underway." Or wh- where are we at?
5: I haven't heard anything from Still. the province, and it's like they lost my phone number or whatever. <laughs> and it's it's you know I've had the same phone number since 1980. <laughs> too. So um, I have spoke to my lawyer and we do have a plan and so that's where I'm going right after we're done here. So I'm going to go talk to him and see uh, how this will fold out and take it from there.
1: Are you frustrated? And is there frustrations oh, yeah. from other, first? because, you know, we had the premier himself said he was going to ensure that Doug Donaldson was going to do what, what needed to be done. Doug, Doug Donaldson, the forest minister, stood up in the mm-hmm. legislature and said, I'm going to ensure that there's consultation. I'm going to reach out to the land titles office. Uh, there was a sense from the land titles office they were going to try and pick up the phone and talk to people. And yet, I mean, here you are, one of the key players in this whole thing,
5: and you've got zip. Zero. I haven't got a phone call from any of them. I, I, I have no idea why they don't call because it's very important to us. Like, yeah, and it should be, you know, they've got a, 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 an, a letter from union of BC Indian Chiefs saying, you know, don't do that because we need those records for our specific claims and land claims. That's primarily what union of BC Indian chiefs does yeah. is to uh, try and get the land back that was taken from us. You know, Whispering Pines Indian, man, we've been moved three times since um, British Columbia became a province. And so we have to reconcile those moves. And that's what this specific claims is for. And that's why those records are so very important. There was a a records office move from Prince George, and they lost those. Mm. And so that's what scares the heck out of me. It may you know, it may cost the British Columbia taxpayer more in the long run if they lose those records.
1: Now, some of those records have already been removed. We know that yeah. for sure. I'm, and again, the, the process from a media perspective is fairly opaque. You know, we had a tip off that boxes are being put in a van. We sent somebody over and found out about it. But other than that, we're kind of, you know, we're operating blindfolded on this thing. And this office is not being uh, overly transparent, shall <laughs> we say. Are, are you concerned knowing just some records and not
5: knowing what the hell is happening with the other ones or that's exactly the problem i would would have liked to have some oversight and some kind of assurance that the records that will remain are adequate but as you know when you when you start getting into the supreme court and stuff like that photocopies and copies aren't all, always admitted and so what we need we would like them to keep the originals here yeah where you know instead of going back to victoria you know i, I talked to the ceo and she said well we have an earthquake proof building. And I said, Well, we don't have earthquakes here at all, so we don't need one. So and, you know, there was that kind of dialogue. Yeah. And so it was uh it's um you know frustrating to say the least.
1: Okay. So you're talking to lawyer anything yep. else anything else on the agenda? I know um, uh, I was talking to some other First Nations leaders, and they were telling me that, hey, listen, we've got to take this right to the top. This is an issue. We've got to go straight to the Premier. Mm-hmm. we got to start raising hell and getting him on this issue. Uh, I took it to him. He seemed to be on it when I talked to him about <laughs> it, but that was weeks ago, and it sounds like nothing's happening there. So what do you do outside the legal stuff?
5: I don't know. Maybe that's only the only way to get their attention. It's, it seems that way because they're not responding to or they're not following up with um, the things that they said they're going to do, like give me a call, right? Yeah. You see me outside, I was talking on my phone when I came in here, so my phone still works. Yeah. So. Well, I have no problem reaching you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So it's, uh, it, Hopefully there's, uh, there's some resolution and some comfort comes from this, because right now it, it's kind of spooky for us. Because we do have an active claim on the village of Clinton, yeah. and so I can't have those records screwed up, for lack of a better term, because mm. my lawyers need those. Gotcha, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in, man. No problem, Shane. Anytime.
1: That's Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Michael Laborde, and that's it for today's Whitford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow.
0: Local news now.